Welcome back to The Profitable Python. I'm your host, Ben McNeil, and on this episode, you will meet Dr. Sarah Kaiser. Dr. Kaiser is a research engineer who has spent much of her career developing new hardware in the lab, from quantum satellites to medical devices and consumer electronics. Communicating what is so exciting about quantum is her passion. She loves finding new demos and tools to help enable the quantum open source community to grow. When not at the keyboard, she loves kayaking, laser cutting everything, and writing books about engineering for kids. Dr. Kaiser, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely, yeah, this is gonna be great. And my first question for you is, where does your love of burning things with lasers come from? <laughs> um, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> basically, when I had my first physics course, uh, we had like a lab section and I saw in the back they had the, the more powerful lasers where the, the older students were like setting marshmallows on fire. And I'm like, yeah, that, that's going to be it for me. So <laughs> I actually chose my PhD project on what was the project that would enable me to use the highest powered laser. So That's awesome. Um, I actually got to set plasma fires uh, in glass with hmm. high powered lasers, so. That sounds amazing. I, uh, I went to a techie school. I never got to mess with any lasers though. They, those those uh, were probably off limits for me. <laughs> and I do also have uh, Dr. Evil uh, quoted in my thesis. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, I love it. Uh, where did you get the idea to write neural networks for babies? <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, my co-author on that, we actually were academic collaborators uh, when I was doing research. And so um, he kind of contacted me and he's like, what are you into these days? Like, and it turned out that I had just uh, given a talk at um, quantum, uh, quantum machine learning for all, quantum, sorry, machine learning for all was the conference uh, and had been doing a lot of machine learning and computer vision stuff for, for my job. And I was like, let's do some neural networks for babies. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was a really fun project and um, really fun to, we also did um, robotics for babies and ABCs of engineering, um, all of which were very fun to go through editing for. <laughs> mm -hmm. So the, the publisher that normally just does children's books being like multimeter, is this is this a good choice here? But I think my favorite my favorite inclusion there is in the ABCs of engineering. Um, R is for requirements, which I thought was a. They were like, is this really engineering? And I'm like, heck yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> Every one of my projects starts with a requirements doc. So. That's that's awesome. I uh, I can appreciate having. I mean, the stuff is so complicated as it is. I I come from a petroleum engineering background, but I mean, we had to take the general engineering and uh, yeah, that stuff deserves like an incremental approach if you're trying to get up to speed. So for babies, you got to learn how to crawl before you can walk. I love it. Yeah. It is really cute to see kids try and pronounce spectrometer, or <laughs> but it's, it's just great. Like let them have exposure to the, the words. Like they may not know what they mean at that point, but right. you know, then when they encounter it later, it won't feel so weird. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I, I reflect on my childhood and I just think, I mean, I'm not, I'm not regretful, but I think like how amazing could it be if I, if there was some way to expose myself to this stuff, like at a super young age. And that just, that sounds like an awesome tool. Yeah. So, 
with, without, uh, well, I watched your video on what is quantum machine learning and is it a thing? So without kind of, <laughs> we'll just send people a link. They should go check it out. Um, but without, um, completely like rehashing it, I was kind of curious, like, how would you explain what a quantum computer is to a fourth grader? Um, probably I would say something, uh, like, I don't know if this fourth grader is in a Minecraft, but, uh, they probably are. A quantum computer is, is kind of like a graphics card. So it's okay. a, it's a specialized hardware that can accelerate certain types of things on your computer. So just like graphics cards or GPUs accelerate fancy graphics for things. Uh, quantum computers can also accelerate certain types of problems. They're not universally going to speed everything up. They're not universally going to replace your computers. They are basically supplementary hardware. <laughs> awesome. So that's, that's awesome. Uh, I don't know how I would handle that question. So thank you for, for doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it is contingent on this four year old being very tech savvy, but, um, mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I've met some very, very forward thinking four year olds. <laughs> yeah. That's the, uh, so Minecraft is like Legos. And I think that's what, if I had to trace my lineage of passion for engineering and data and, and whatnot, data management, it, I think I could trace it back to Legos is kind of, is what I hinge it all on. And Minecraft is like, you know, Legos on steroids, I guess. <laughs> mm -hmm. There is actually a really neat open source project where um, somebody used the open source fork of Minecraft uh, to make a quantum, like, I think it's called Q-Blocks, but basically okay. it's Minecraft, but with quantum mechanics, mechanics. Hmm. <laughs> so it's, it's a pretty neat project. I'm going to, I'm going to hunt it down and plop it on the links here for sure. <laughs> Uh, so why is now the right time to write your new book, Quantum Computing with Python and Q-Sharp? Um, the, the thing that really has kind of been changing in the, in the last few years here is that uh, partly the, the field has really transitioned to a commercial one. So, you know, I, I came at it through the academic side. I did my PhD in quantum computing research and quantum cryptography research, um, but Basically now, a lot of companies, including like Microsoft, Google, IBM, um, Honeywell, uh, pretty much every defense contractor has decided that um, they want to invest now. And so there is kind of a huge shift in kind of the interest and where a lot of the actual progress is being made from academic to industry uh, domains. And what has been additionally very exciting and what has really motivated the book, I think, is that a lot of so a lot of people think of this as just the hardware development hardware development effort for the quantum hardware piece mm -hmm. but uh you know even if we had the exact right quantum hardware tomorrow we actually wouldn't know how to integrate it into the stack <laughs> you know wow. there's a lot of software that has to happen and you know firmware and basically that whole layer of connectivity so that you can get your quantum device to talk to Visual Studio. <laughs> um, th hmm. There's a lot there. And so uh, it's been really exciting for me and my co-author to see the um, open source development of this stack, basically. Um, pretty much every major company that's working on this has some components of their, their stack or API open source. Um, and Microsoft's is kind of notable in the from the standpoint. Um, so Microsoft has the quantum development kit and the 
brand new programming language, Q Sharp, um, which is specifically designed for quantum computing. Mm. <laughs> so we can talk about why that makes more sense as opposed to just doing um, packages for other languages. But um, it's Microsoft's approach is unique from the standpoint that they're really working on the software side of this and making sure that they have everything from controlling the devices in the lab, which they have like an open source project called Qcodes, which they use to actually automate their lab all the way up to um, the product that they announced at um, Ignite last year was Azure Quantum. So there will actually be, you'll be able to, as a part of your Azure subscription, requisition oh, wow. time on the quantum devices. Um, there is no public, there's a private preview um, that you can sign up for, but there is no public uh, availability for that quite yet. Mm -hmm. So, and yeah. maybe we can crack open that can of worms of why, mm -hmm. like a package on Python, uh, I forget what it's called, like Raspberry Fields or something like that, or? Uh, strawberry Fields. Strawberry Fields. I knew it was some berry. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The, everything from that company is Beatles themed, I think. Okay. <laughs> or something like that. I, yeah. They have a theme. <laughs> That's... Um, but yeah, so so a lot of the other companies like IBM, um, I believe that's Strawberry Fields might be Rigetti, um, but the a lot of them have really it's been neat. They've all actually kind of taken the same approach of they want to reach people who know Python, um, and so they've all developed basically Python packages to allow you to either interface with their hardware or interface with their simulator and their hardware, um, and that's really cool. Uh, but it kind of has. There's some pros and cons. Um, pros, lots of people know Python. Python is great. <laughs> it's my go-to language for everything, uh, unless, you know, rules dictate otherwise. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but the kind of problem is when you're thinking about writing code for a new hardware model itself, uh, you can't necessarily, there are things that you can't do on quantum hardware that you can do on classical hardware. So things like just copying an arbitrary register or copying an arbitrary variable, you can't necessarily do that in quantum. And so mm -hmm. you kind of have to make these weird guardrails to try and make sure that users who are familiar with Python and have all these things they know that they can do in Python and make them realize that they can't do that <laughs> on the quantum hardware. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's, there are kind of some model mismatches in between like what you know you can do with Python and what you can do with quantum hardware. And so what that ends up meaning is when you write code for these, these devices, um, really you end up writing stuff kind of more at the, I'll call it like assembly level <laughs> instructions where you're saying, do this gate, do this gate, you know, which is similar to like, I guess if someone sat down and said, you know, do this logic operation, do this logic operation. Oh, wow. you know, kind of like for my digital electronics course. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, and, and that's great. That's certainly, you know, we still have people that write firmware and stuff at that level for classical hardware. But um, I really feel that, now that having these software stacks, having all these open source tools really allows us to kind of move beyond that and get to that next level of abstraction mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and start thinking more at the algorithmic level, which is something that just genuinely we haven't really been able to do before. Like certainly researchers who work on quantum algorithms think about this, but they generally just have compilers in their head <laughs> or are just really good at math. So, you know, it's, um, my co-author likes to say it's much easier to debug a page of code than it is to debug a page of math. Yeah. And that's kind of what's really cool about having these, these software tools is like now 
you can just run what you're thinking and it will tell you if there's an error or if mm. that, you know, does not compute. Yeah. So it's, it's a really, really exciting time, I think, in the kind of software development, quantum software development and space. Hmm. So maybe, maybe as uh, like traditional, do we call them traditional software developers now? Like, is that the differentiation? Uh, there's quantum and then there's traditional or? I mean, I think, <laughs> again, I, I would appeal to probably the, the GPU um, parallel here. Okay. Um, <laughs> parallelism, no pun intended. <laughs> um, you know, we have languages that are specifically designed for GPUs like CUDA and, you know, other proprietary languages for the hardware. But, you know, I don't necessarily, if I want to use a GPU in my application, I will probably rely on some Python package <laughs> or mm -hmm. some other tool that's already, that, you know, compiles to CUDA that then runs on the device. And so that's kind of like where QSharp sits is you're sitting at one layer abstracted from that actual, uh, you know, specialized code, uh, op codes for the quantum hardware that then actually gets sent to the quantum hardware. Okay. I mean, if you had to think about stuff at the and, nor, not level to write a React app, you <laughs> would probably go insane. Yeah. <laughs> or even just to plot something in pandas, right? Like. Yeah. I, yeah. So just stand on the shoulders of giants or is it worth kind of getting into the weeds with this stuff or maybe get some fundamentals, but. Yeah, I, I think there, there's certainly value in being in all parts of the stack. What I think uh, is novel about where we're at now is that we actually have the ability to go that <laughs> one layer of abstraction. Yeah. Um, there certainly is a lot of space and really there is a, there is a huge kind of uh, employment shortage in the quantum field basically and it's not for probably who you think it's not for people who already know quantum it's for people who have classical dev skills to help build up the rest of the stack like mm. um you know we have a lot of experience building up server you know like resources and server farms you know we need um cicd to like how do you how do you integrate quantum hardware into cicd how do you you know there's lots of parts of basically anywhere in the regular development stack uh, probably we'll have to interface with this and we don't really know what that looks like. And oh, given wow. that traditionally, you know, physicists and more academic folks have been working on this, that's not usually forefront of their mind. Like they're interested in what's the, what's the paper? How do they get yeah. the paper out of this? <laughs> um, but, which is also important, but you know, that doesn't actually translate it into like a usable product or experience for folks. Hmm. So. Wow. Yeah. Thanks for the insight on that. I, um, I think that's amazing. You, so you're, you're saying this is kind of, uh, like definitely worth investing in if you're kind of looking for like a new career path and you're passionate about development. Like this is, this is, uh, you know, like you're going to look back in 20 years from now and be like, that was a great decision to make. I mean, I certainly hope so. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> cause that's a decision I've made. But, <laughs> um, yeah. but yeah, it, it really is kind of like a watershed moment in that now, you know, it has reached kind of colloquial acceptance of we will have this technology. Let's actually get the stack prepared for it. And mm -hmm. so like there is, you know, huge numbers of hirings at all the large companies that are, I mean, there still is kind of a race for who's going to have the best hardware, but um, in terms of who's kind of put forward the best software option, at least in based on my research, I've really kind of settled on uh, Q Sharp is a really great 
um, kind of holistic approach to the to the problem. Um, and it also has Python interoperability. So awesome. <laughs> just because it is, I'm excited. You know, yeah. I know the name Q sharp uh, sounds like this is a .NET thing. And it's true, it is. Um, but uh, it actually it also interops with Python and has its own, um, if folks are uh, familiar with Jupyter Notebooks, mm -hmm. it also has a Jupyter Notebook kernel, which I actually find really helpful. Wow. I know I do most of my Python development in Jupyter Notebooks. <laughs> yeah, you, you uh, had mentioned Rise as one of the open source mm -hmm. projects that excite you. And I was, mm -hmm. I was checking that out. That, does, that looks pretty awesome. Do you, get to, do you get to turn your notebooks into slideshows often or? Um, I did just for the last uh, Wicca talk last week, um, but I, it was something I was, I was kind of looking for something. Um, I'd been using reveal.js, which is what, so Rise is an open source project that kind of marries a static site generator, uh, React.js with Jupyter Notebooks. And so, um, you know, I, I generally was writing my talks in, in this other just markdown formatter, basically, and then having to swap over to Jupyter Notebook and swap back. And so it was really awesome to find this tool that actually allows me to just write my slides in, in the notebook cells. And then, you know, you can flag. Presentation mode has been there for a while, but this actually makes it like really nice and easy to customize and can just run the code right in the presentation. And so uh. the other thing that's been really nice about it is you can configure it with Binder. So Binder is an online service that basically allows you to connect a repo, have it so people go to like a GitHub repo, they can launch it online. Oh, wow. Um, and so what that does by when I have Rise set up in it, it actually auto launches into the presentation when they open it mm. so that they can actually click through the slides. They still get to run the cells and the notebook is still there if they, you know, close the, the presentation, but they can have that exact same experience with the slides. Hmm. So. Um, yeah, that's, in case they're not familiar with Jupyter notebooks. Yeah, that's that is awesome. I'm uh, I'm kind of I have to do a lot of reporting at work, and so I see mm -hmm. a lot of power and because um, I've heard of things with um, that I forget what the JavaScript piece of it was. Is it what there, there's some oh, reveal, reveal. that yes. yeah yeah yeah. So there's mm -hmm. I've seen some things. I think it's called like Flipboard or something like that where. You can mm -hmm. actually convert them into PDFs and stuff, and that would be super handy mm -hmm. for me. But I never yeah. thought about the Jupiter route. Like, that's I ask that question partially out of like selfish. I'm like, I wonder what <laughs> these people know that I don't know. So yeah, thank you for sharing that. That was a really cool library uh, that I'm excited to dig into more. I hope other people go check it out too. Mm -hmm. Definitely. How? So this was another thing you addressed in that YouTube top. Um, but I, I wrote this question down and then I watched it and I was like, I'm still asking it. So <laughs> how close is quantum cryptography from breaking the internet? <laughs> oh boy. Um, yeah. The, so the hype. <laughs> the hype. That's a, a lot of the time I spend giving talks about quantum computing and quantum crypto is like trying to. Uh, walk back expectations and make sure we all have kind of the same understanding moving forward because as, as you point out there is a lot of hype about this stuff I mean I've seen things <laughs> I actually screen cap whenever Google suggests articles to me about quantum which it does a lot because it thinks I like quantum computing <laughs> yeah um, and I I will often start talks with just like a collage of all of these headlines like will quantum computers solve world hunger? Uh, will, you know, this time crystal reverse our understanding of the flow of time? 
mean, <laughs> there's always a germ of truth in each one of these, but yeah, yeah it, they kind of get blown out of proportion. Um, so as, as an introduction, quantum cryptography um, is really, uh, well, there's one protocol that we know how to do <laughs> uh, that, that seems to be useful, um, and that's quantum key distribution. So cryptography could be any number of tasks like certification or uh, actual encryption, but here this is uh, the tasks that we know we can actually improve with with quantum is exchanging keys. So like mm. Diffie-Hellman or RSA are public, uh, public key sorts of options. This would be another potential option. Um, the breaking the internet part of it <laughs> uh, is basically the idea that one of the quantum algorithms that we do know about um, that will likely be feasible on long terms, long time scale quantum hardware uh, is Shor's algorithm, which can factor numbers uh, faster than any known um, classical algorithm. That's significant because a lot of classical crypto relies on factoring large numbers as being a computationally hard problem. Mm -hmm. So that kind of breaks that assumption. Now, as to when it will break the internet, <laughs> um, I mean, certainly if we had something that could run Shor's algorithm tomorrow, it might be a problem. But really, I'll, I'll put some math forward here. Uh, so how, the length of the key that you'd probably be trying to factor is maybe 2048, 4096. Like, so that's 4,000. That's almost five, a little over 4,000 qubits to start with to just even like record that key in your quantum computer, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, let alone the computational overheads. So for context, we probably have devices that have generously assuming maybe a hundred qubits right now. Okay. Uh, the overhead required, given our current understanding of error rates and th uh, that we would be able to achieve on hardware is like 10 to the, I wanna say seven or eight qubits. Oh, wow. <laughs> like millions, billions. Yeah. It's a ways away. <laughs> so <laughs> um, unless we can make substantial, uh, and. I have no doubt that we will make progress in that direction because a lot of the stuff that's limiting us right now is mm -hmm. basically just classical engineering problems. Okay. Um, a lot of the hardware actually gets to leverage a lot of our existing expertise in silicon. So they're using silicon fabs that are making the top end GPUs that are making and you know it's just kind of a matter of you know like most material sciences the black <laughs> black magic of putting a shake of this on and then this on, and then you get the superconductor you want. But hmm. yeah, so. Wow. I, I'm i uh, curious about, the, so just because I went through a, uh, I kind of tasted a bunch of different disciplines. I did materials, I did uh, electrical. Um, there was like some others, there was kind of like uh, dynamics. There was like a fluids one. There was a thermodynamics. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm just trying to get, I'm just trying to wrap my brain around like where, where is the opportunity here for people? I mean, it sounds like it's, there's a lot of opportunity, but like you, like materials, I never would have thought that like we're inventing new materials, but we're also developing the math still. And we're trying to figure out the, the thermal aspect of these because they, they run in a refrigerator, as you say. Uh, like, can, can you put some Not color like on the this? refrigerator in your house? But right. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Let's be clear. Huh? 
it's running colder than outer space. Uh, so outer space, like usually, is about four Kelvin in deep space. Uh, the fridges that hold these devices are usually um, tens of millikelvin, maybe down to a, like two millikelvin. Hmm. So, and that's away from absolute zero. <laughs> so wow. that's what you need to basically um, to see quantum effects. The device has to be isolated from its environment, and thermal thermal links are a way for kind of the device to interact with the environment. So you have to freeze <laughs> freeze it really well. <laughs> yeah. Holy so. cow. Uh, but it, it seems like if you have any sort of traditional engineering background, there's probably like a place in the ecosystem for you. Is that, is that kind of what I understand? Yeah, totally. Um, I think um, it, you'd said earlier that we're still working out the math and I would actually maybe contest that and say, I think we actually understand the, like we understand the quantum mechanics fairly well. Okay. Um, but what is interesting is, you know, we understand it in theory <laughs> and models are always perfect. And so where there's a lot of like new theory development is when it kind of in tandem with the new material development, like we've made a new material. We don't know how this works. Mm. Uh, all right. Well, it's basically a lot of them are metamaterials where you are mixing different kinds of materials together. And so it's like, well, which property of this material will kind of win out in this interaction? Just got to try it out. And find okay, out. Wow. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so like people with, uh, there's a lot of electronics work necessary to basically do the, um, one of the really cool projects related here is if you have FPGA skills, <laughs> um, one of the kind of leading research areas and as well as commercial application areas is getting FPGAs to sit as close as possible to these devices. So FPGAs that are sitting at 10, 10 millikelvin <laughs> to actually do that post-processing right near the device so there isn't really a chance for noise to kind of enter enter the line as you try to get the signals out of the fridge because hmm. that that's that whole path i was talking about before of the the interface layer between these devices which are sitting in at 10 or 15 millikelvin all the way out to you know my desktop <laughs> somewhere else uh, working in visual studio or visual studio code like there's a lot of pieces there and so there's a lot of electrical engineering a lot of cryogenic engineers are being hired weirdly or perhaps not weirdly a lot of that stuff those fridges you can just buy off the shelf oh okay like for about five million dollars so uh. <laughs> but so like surprisingly those are a well worked out and well kind of commercialized piece here and mm. it's more so like the custom electronics for how you interface things um all like the devops like how do you how do you actually like run control these devices. So um, I mentioned earlier, there's a, I think I mentioned earlier, there's a cool, um, another Python open source project from Microsoft called QCodes, which is basically what they're using to automate the, the lab experience for this. And so, hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's also cool how much of this is actually based on Python. So hmm. um, Python skills are also very useful here. <laughs> awesome. Transferable. That's, that's what I want to hear. Mm -hmm. <laughs> What would you what would you consider your first success as a quantum scientist? Um, so probably my first success was uh, I worked on a couple different projects uh, for my PhD, but the the first one that I really felt really proud of and went went quite well was actually um, I was working on 
commercial QKD devices or commercial quantum key distribution devices because you can actually already buy those off the shelf. So a lot of spin-off technologies related to quantum computing actually are already commercially available, have multiple vendors for, et cetera. So there's a Swiss company that you can buy QKD devices from that uh, wanted us to do some hardware testing of their security. And so this is kind of where the high-powered lasers enter again. Awesome. <laughs> we, we come back to that. So the, the premise was um, I we were trying to vet the security. So um, from, from a hardware perspective, uh, the, the software wasn't really well developed. So doing kind of software fuzzing wasn't. So we basically went to hardware fuzzing. <laughs> and my first approach was, can I melt it with a large light laser? <laughs> and everybody's like, no, that's silly. You're going to break something you need to work. You know, like a DDoS attack isn't super interesting. Like, yes, you prevented them from talking, but you've also destroyed, you know, you're not going to learn anything as an eavesdropper because they're not talking. <laughs> you want them to keep talking and make them believe that you're actually continuing uh, or that they're continuing to communicate securely. Mm-hmm. So um, I said, that's fine. Give me the high-powered laser. I'll still try. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it uh, turns out that you can actually, you know, as a testament to many um, engineers, optical engineers and hardware engineers that went into these devices, uh, a lot of them can tolerate a lot more power than their labels say they can wow. and still be okay. So it turns out that I basically put... Uh, an ungodly amount of laser power into this commercial device and it did not break any of the quantum parts, but it broke all the classical monitoring parts. Wow. And so basically blinded it and then were able to do other attacks on it. So, hmm. but while it was running, it did not notice any of this happening. So this was, um, there are a number of attacks on these sorts of devices, but this was a pretty comprehensive, like proof of like just real time. We actually executed the attack. It worked. First time, hmm. I was very excited about this. That... <laughs> and also, I I have YouTube videos in in my talks about showing what the plasma fires look like. Okay. So we didn't want to. The goal here was to melt the detectors, but not start a plasma fire in the fire fiber, because mm. this is all optical fiber based in the box. Um, it's turned out once burn you start a plasma fiber. <laughs> yeah, once you start a plasma fire, you can't like it actually leaves a bunch of bubbles in the glass. And so light, you basically can't send light through it ever again. Hmm. <laughs> it's so, the DDoS of optical fiber. <laughs> interesting. So the uh, so it wasn't it wasn't that you could just send an incredible amount of power into this. It's it's that you could do it with and still like basically attack it, but let it still operate. So it was kind of like a uh, like you kind of dialed it in to to uh, I guess I, I'm struggling with the terminology here. So you're dialing in the power. You did an attack in situ while it was running. Okay. Um, but yeah, no, basically what I did to, because these devices were like a couple million dollars. And so like, I'm sitting here anxious, like, <laughs> am I going to just brick $2 million <laughs> worth of lab equipment? So what I ended up doing was taking copies of each piece of uh, components in the box and testing each one of them individually first to kind of see okay. how much they could tolerate and then like putting that all together, trying to work out, all right, I need to get at least this much power here. It looks like this piece won't, you know, I put at least the, this much power here and it didn't break. So I guess we'll try. <laughs> I had extras to fix things if I needed to, but yeah. you know, there was this really kind of high anxiety moment when I like clicked the button 
you know, to start the attack. And it was like, <laughs> nothing, nothing caught on fire. It was all good. And yeah, uh, yeah only, only broke the, the components I wanted to, which was kind of the really, I think the part people didn't expect about this, this sort of attack. They thought it was mm. just, you know, carpet burn everything, but yeah. And that, that's not the case. <laughs> and it's a testament to, um, kind of like the status quo or anti-status quo. Like everybody was kind of like, Oh, why would you do this type thing? And you're like, Oh, contraire, watch, you know, watch and learn. <laughs> so I, I love the, like, even if, even if you don't understand what's going on here, like, like I'm like trying to hang on for dear life with this terminology, like that right there is a huge nugget to that's the, but that's a scientific method, right? Like that, that's what you're always seeking, I guess. Yeah. I, we had a hypothesis and, you know, a lot of people thought it wasn't a good idea and was a waste of time and just said, well, you know, I've, I've melted a lot of things in my life. <laughs> Let me see if I can do a little bit more damage here. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So, I grew up on a farm playing with arc welders, so. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's a, I've, I've done a little welding, but, um, I don't know. I, you, you are definitely passionate about it and I couldn't be more excited for you. You found, you found a new thing to burn and I'm so happy for you. Exactly. <laughs> where, uh, where do you see the biggest opportunities for people that are skilled in quantum computing? Um, so for people who already are familiar with it? Uh, yeah. Or, or, or if they're trying to kind of like, build their learning trajectory that way they land somewhere where it's going to be you could take that question mm -hmm. both ways like sure it takes four years to get skilled up what does that opportunity look like maybe in four years or something sure yeah yeah um so i i think um kind of as as we were talking about before there really is this opportunity for folks especially without quantum backgrounds um mm. so building up different parts of the stack i think um some skills that i've i've found really useful working in this space are like knowing how to work in open source like just knowing how to use github you would be surprised how many scientists don't under don't even know what git is like mm. uh they manage all of their code version controls in different folders on one jump drive that sits nice. in the machine in the lab. So, you know, <laughs> I was horrified. When I into, we even had cops come to the lab at one point because uh, someone plugged in a Windows XP service pack zero machine to the internet. Oh, wow. Because that's what we needed to control our lab, lab instruments. But hmm. yeah, so, um, you know, general <laughs> development and computer science skills will be surprising like surprisingly useful um you know and and there are a lot of uh get involved with the open source projects like you know even even if you don't have those skills build those skills up by working you know work on the qsharp projects work on um like ibm's uh, python packages quizkit like there's a ton of different projects whatever uh interests you go for it um a lot of the open issues and stuff are they're not to solve quantum problems they're to solve you know very very standard like either you know web app front end stuff or compiler stuff or you know everything that is you know pretty standard in in the rest of tech so hmm. um obviously the python skills are useful because most of them 
that all of them have uh, Python, are either based in Python or have Python interoperability. Um, other opportunities. I, I actually, um, what has come out of some of the, I run a meetup group, uh, as you mentioned here in Seattle, uh, called WICA, Women in Quantum Computing and, and Applications. Uh, and we actually kind of had a brainstorming session about like front end visualizations for these tools. Like, you know, a lot of it right now is like you're writing code and that's great. Um, I've worked in visualizations for actually Mathematica, the, the Mathematica programming language. Um, and, you know, visualizations have a lot of power. <laughs> I mean, and so, you know, trying to think of new ways to actually visualize what we're doing here, you know, maybe like obviously with educational purpose, but, you know, also just trying to understand and help people develop better algorithms. Like yeah, there, that is kind of one of the, I'll definitely say more challenging pieces here is like, you know, people study algorithms in school, like you can, you can learn how to do quick sort and implement it in every, you know, programming languages for interviews and whatnot. But, um, you know, just what you can and can't do on quantum computers. So like I mentioned, you can't arbitrarily copy things. Um, you're a lot more resource constrained. So it's kind of like rolling back time on a classical computer where you had to think about, you know, every bit on every, you know, memory stick it has, you know, it will likely be in use. So how do you sequence, make sure timing of things uh, is mm. okay. Um, yeah, so especially if people are interested in kind of new novel, like algorithm development, um, and particularly statistics backgrounds will also be really useful in that case, because mm -hmm. a lot of that comes down to um, people sometimes think uh, quantum algorithms are not deterministic. Um, that's not necessarily true. Like, um, you can make quantum algorithms give you particular outcome with probability one, but some of them are probabilistic. And so there's a lot of kind of art in trying to play around and get the answer that you're looking for to have the highest probability. Hmm. So having like a good data science statistics background also is, I think, going to be hugely, hugely helpful. Awesome. Yeah, that I think the most empowering thing there is it's just there's so much skills that are transferable. So kind of feeding into my next question here, I, I posed it as, is it possible for people to self-educate on quantum computing? But now kind of speaking with you, I realize yes, the answer is yes. But um, what kind of academic background do they need? Or if they don't go that route, what kind of expectations should they set for themselves if they're just kind of like good with Python and they're passionate about writing code? Yeah, I mean, I, I think about this a lot sometimes when I push the power button on my computer. Like, I genuinely do not understand the entire, like, I understand at some, like, theoretical level that, you know, electrons go through that switch, and then somehow I end up with an operating system. Uh, but I'm not an expert in all of those stacks, nor do I need to be to be a Python developer. Like, mm -hmm. and so, you know, I, I think a lot of times people approach, like, uh, quantum computing or even machine learning, things like that with, you know, I have to understand the whole thing before I can do it. And I would definitely put forward, that's not necessary. Like awesome. I have worked in the field for 10 years. I do not understand everything. <laughs> like, you know, no, no one can, 
but still like it doesn't prevent me from making you know good contributions to the field and tons of the people I also see working on the open source projects like I don't think very many of them if any have any sort of like you know maybe they took one physics course in undergrad or high school or something like that like mm -hmm. certainly if you're interested in the quantum parts dig in like they're you know obviously my book is a good resource <laughs> um our our approach is basically you know for someone who's comfortable with programming in general doesn't even have to necessarily be python but we basically have you build up a simulator in python to learn kind of what's going on on the quantum side and then use your intuition based on that to start writing programs in Q-sharp. Awesome. But um, yeah, there's there's plenty of good resources to learn the quantum part if you're interested, but that is definitely not a requirement to being able to make substantial contributions to the area, mm -hmm. for sure. That's awesome. Yeah, I know perfectionism has, is like a constant thing I'm trying to weed out in my own like processes and so, this is a message to the perfectionists out there. Don't, you don't have to, there, there's no like hill you need to climb to, to be able to embark on this journey. Like you could just, you can go for it if you want to, is kind of what I'm getting. Yeah. And I do genuinely believe like anyone can be a quantum developer at this point. Like we have developed the tools to a certain point now that, mm -hmm. you know, you can write the Q sharp code in visual studio. You'll get IntelliSense, you'll get, or, or in visual studio code, can have IntelliSense, you can have auto-completion, you get compilation errors for quantum, you know, like just even that phrase compilation errors for a quantum computer is just like, <laughs> I awesome. would not have imagined that, you know, or even thought about that when I was in school. So, hmm. you know, it's, it's a really, really cool time to get into it, I think. Awesome. Uh, if you had to start over tomorrow on learning quantum computing, where would you start? Like first maybe like first step, I guess. Um, that's a good question. Uh, honestly, I think I would just, um, I would probably just dig into the open source projects. Like okay. assuming I, I didn't have any other sorts of uh, existing background, but genuinely like interacting with the community and interacting with those projects, like, Mm -hmm. has both taught me so much and you know I think is really one of the best ways like also to stand out so like you know because there's such a push to hire uh at, I mean there's tons and tons of roles available at for quantum development and stuff like that at Microsoft and IBM and places like that you know having some experience contributing to their open source repos is a <laughs> a huge differentiator. <laughs> um, I actually just this year got a Microsoft MVP and as far yeah, as I know, I saw I'm that. their first quantum technologies MVP. So amazing. Congrats. Cool. But <laughs> yeah, I, uh, <laughs> it was interesting. They, they were going back and forth. They didn't know what, how to categorize it. <laughs> so it took them a while, but I'm, I'm glad. And it's been a really fun community to be a part of, but, um, yeah, I, I think really kind of digging into the communities involved in it and, mm -hmm. and working on open source is just a great way to both build your resume on it, uh, obviously to learn. Um, a lot of, I mean, something I do a lot of in my spare time is I read over docs and just make PRs to fix docs. You know, a lot of times people think contributing to open source means writing new code. That's not necessarily true. Like all contributions are helpful. So mm. read the docs 
find find spelling errors, find you know highlight uh, file an issue on places that don't make any sense. Like a lot of times, you know, sometimes there isn't enough resources kind of put into developing them, so they're kind of spotty. Like mm -hmm. I know there's. Um, just because the API is very large, there's a lot of um, API pages for QSharp that don't have any like samples or things like that. So okay. I've been trying to make, uh, as part of my quarantine routine, <laughs> just kind of trying, <laughs> trying to, uh, you know, make, even if they're just relatively small contributions every couple of days to just keep my familiarity up and keep, uh, keep on top of stuff. So yeah, I love it. It's an easy thing to do. Mm -hmm. I, uh, in the uh, pre-interview, you had mentioned that uh, there's no such thing as a meritocracy and it's all about like who, you know, and so <laughs> I like when I first, when I first heard that, I was like, oh, I didn't know to be like feeling empowered or like bummed out. Cause, uh, but I mean, it's, I, we need the straight talk, you know what I mean? And uh, yeah. so one, like what you're talking about doing this community work is kind of your way of like, okay, if this is the, if the water is flowing in this direction and there is no such thing as a meritocracy, this is how you make sure you don't fight the rules of the universe is kind of what I'm, I, I, I don't know. It's I was also just, a good way to get to know who's in the community and yeah. know like the opportunities available. Like I, um, when I first moved here, um, I was living in Sydney, Australia before and now I live in Seattle. Um, mm -hmm. when I first moved here, I started going to tech meetups like my ladies, our ladies, things like that. Um, and, I won free tickets and a raffle to build. And then the next year I was speaking at build. So, wow. <laughs> um, which is Microsoft's biggest tech conference or like developer conference. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I definitely coming from academia, like you think everything is kind of a meritocracy. If you're just really good at what you do, you will be recognized for that. And I mean, in an ideal world, maybe, but there's enough, a lot of it is just luck and who you know so you know get to get to know who those people are and, you know like learn who are the you know some companies have developer advocates some you know if you're especially if you're looking for roles in this area like then you will find out when they have new postings and stuff like that so it's a I really I think one of my favorite parts about being a part of the tech community and the python community um and developing the quantum uh, qsharp community is just getting to meet cool people who are doing cool things. So like, yeah. it's a, it's a win-win for everyone, I think. Mm -hmm. And you may have answered this uh, in, in different fragments, but I want to just, I want to just hit it directly here. So knowing that the rules of the, the universe are kind of like, there is no such thing as a meritocracy and it is about who, you know, what is kind of your biggest uh, piece of strategy you have for getting to know the right people? Um, <laughs> honestly, for me, a lot of it's come from Twitter. Nice. <laughs> it's following like really interesting people on Twitter. And like over the last couple of years, I've ended up getting to meet a lot of them in okay. person. And a lot of the, uh, I've gotten really great speaking opportunities from that. Like, cause they're like, Oh, Hey, I remember you from Twitter. I, you know, I have this thing I want a speaker for. Like, I know you work on quantum stuff. Like, want to come talk about quantum stuff so um like and maybe kind of along those lines like if you go to meetups or or conferences or things like that i try to be really diligent about um 
I mean, not that people really do business cards anymore, but making sure that I connect with people that like I've actually chatted to. And sometimes I even take notes kind of to just mm -hmm. remember like, oh, they work at GitHub or something like that. And so when I am thinking about like, oh, I'm giving a talk here, maybe they want me to, you know, just kind of, I, I don't have the best memory in my head, so I have to supplement it with notes. Yeah. <laughs> and they're, you know, they're not super detailed or anything like that, but it's just kind of a good way to kind of organize, you know, my contacts in some sense. <laughs> like, yeah. not in terms of their contact details, but just like, what's, what spheres do they play in? Like, I have friends in InfoSec, I have friends in uh, web development, I have friends in the maker community, like, and so yeah, when I'm looking for opportunities or looking to connect people, it's a really great way. Because when you build up your network, certainly it's good for you, but then if you help make connections for other people, that can also be really beneficial, so. Mm, I love it, yeah, that's, that's some gold right there. We just got our money's worth, folks, and we're not even done yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so, so kind of along the lines of like, if you had to start over tomorrow, what would be the first thing that you'd start with? But what would be kind of the first tool that you would pick up to bring on your journey? Um, probably Python. <laughs> uh, it nice. is ubiquitous in the field. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, at all layers of, at many layers of the stack, you know, from like we talked about instrument control in the lab to um, actually writing those, those high level applications. Um, <laughs> I, I really think of Python as kind of my Swiss army knife or, or multi-tool of, of my programming skills. It's probably never the right tool for a specific task, but it'll get the job done. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so, I'll be sitting there sawing with a little saw for a long time, but. <laughs> you know, they make power tools for that thing. Yeah. No, I love that. The, the yeah. best metaphor for Python I've heard. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, and, and that's what I tell people too. Like it's, it's a great kind of, if, if you're only going to learn one language or you only have time to learn one language, like it's a really great utility. You can, you know, do everything from scripting to web development to like, I mean, there's probably a package for pretty much everything you want at this point. Yeah. <laughs> so that's yeah, usually that's my awesome. first, like if I'm doing a new thing at work, I just Google how to do X in Python and hope there's a hit. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Um, what, what can somebody focus on uh, when starting out learning quantum computing that solves like 80% of the challenge of getting proficient? Mm. Um, I would say there's a couple kind of um, core quantum like algorithms or example like toy problems that really mm -hmm. kind of illustrate there's kind of two main resources you have uh, in quantum hardware that you don't have in classical hardware. You have superposition <laughs> and mm. you have entanglement. And so, you know, under like looking at some of those uh, kind of toy model example algorithms that really kind of show what you can do with those resources, I think are a really good, uh, a good way to, to, bootstrap that learning process um okay so like some examples would be like the deutsch Josa algorithm um and which allows you to basically learn properties of a function without 
um, trying all the inputs to the function. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. It's, it's one of those, the problem is some of these algorithms have pretty contrived formulations. It's not like a search, search a database or something like that. Uh, although there is a really good search one, but, um, yeah, it's, if I try to describe the setup, you're going to be like, how is this ever going to be applicable? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so it's that that's, I think sometimes some of the challenge of getting bootstrapped here is like the simple examples seem so weird or foreign, but they are kind of, um, when you use them and build them up, you can get more kind of recognizable, solve more recognizable problems. But if I kind of boil it down to just the, the quantum subroutines or the quantum core piece of this algorithm, it's unfortunately pretty hard to describe in a, in a way that seems familiar, which mm. I guess makes sense because we're not quantum beings. <laughs> yeah. We live in the classical world. <laughs> if, if our daily experiences were more quantum, per perhaps that would be easier, but hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. The ten just having things that are tangible. So just to kind of give you a little metaphor here in petroleum engineering, you're like always talking about what's going on 5,000 feet below you type thing. Like nobody mm -hmm. actually knows what's going on down there. <laughs> But we have like a ways of figuring out like where to put the drill bit and stuff. And so it's, it's definitely not quantum in by like what you're talking about here, but it's almost that same, like you're trying to learn these principles, but it's there, there's, there's not like a tangible, you can't like touch something or it's like simulations and, and building. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's where like, um, you know, we work on in the book, you build up your own simulator to kind of help you build that intuition. Okay. Um, and, and that's, so whether you build up your own or whether you use most of the, the existing pa Python packages and Q sharp, the quantum development kit ships with a highly optimized simulator. Um, you can simulate up to like 30 or so qubits on a reasonable laptop. So, hmm. you know, you can actually, get that, like you can bootstrap that learning process. You can actually start playing around with the algorithms. Are you going to solve anything with that number of qubits? Probably not, <laughs> but it really will help you kind of understand what those building blocks and what those effects do so mm -hmm. that you can actually start thinking about, okay, how, how might I apply this elsewhere? Mm -hmm. um, and that's actually another good point of why we're, why the quantum field would really benefit from people with other experiences. Cause like, for example, in petroleum engineering, I, I don't know anything about petroleum engineering other than it involves petroleum. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, I don't know what some of the biggest challenges you face or like a petroleum engineer would face. And so like having people with those different backgrounds, knowing what the challenges are in their field can really help us kind of understand where where we might actually apply the, the quantum computing advantages we'll go with. Yeah. Awesome. What, what would you say is overly difficult and should be avoided at all costs when first starting out with quantum computing? Um, <sighs> so being an experimentalist, I tend to learn best by like doing and like, you know, if, if I need to learn a new programming language or a new Python package, I usually will just install it and start with somebody's like blog, how to do X or whatever. I won't read the docs. I know, shame on me. I should read the <laughs> docs first. 
Um, wow. So I call this experimental coding. Okay. <laughs> and you just, is, if you get errors, you just keep, you know, you kind of work it to a working sample as opposed to like reading from the beginning and working out a plan and doing things probably in a more sensible fashion. Um, I think something that can be discouraging or um, can definitely turn people off is if you start trying to do some of the math here involved that goes into the simulator by hand or like you are trying like because there's potentially a lot of group theory involved like <laughs> I mean there's huge research fields for this for a reason <laughs> mm -hmm. and I think um, sometimes you know depend especially depending on what resources you're looking at like um, prior to having programming languages dedicated to this you you're basically resource was videos and books. <laughs> and mm. so you kind of had to do that. But now that you have these software tools at your disposal, use them. <laughs> you don't have to, you know, yes, there's complex numbers involved. Yes. I mean, honestly, 95% of it is linear algebra. So okay. if you're cool with multiplying, multiplying matrices, that's most of what it is. It's matrices with complex numbers. Okay. So, but don't do it by hand. Yeah. <laughs> like that is what computers are good at. Let them do that. <laughs> yeah. I think that's great so, advice. Yeah, I, I, I don't think people need to get into the math or the, um, like there are some other things you could get into quantum foundations, like more of the philosophical, what does it mean to make a measurement <laughs> from a philosophical standpoint? Very yeah. interesting questions, but not necessary for actually making like contributions to the field here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's amazing. Uh, I know we're we're pretty much um, up. Well, actually, yeah, we have we have a little bit of time still, right? We're doing good yeah, on time for you. Okay, awesome. Um, what are your top three tips for someone to monetize their quantum computing skills? That's a good question. Um, well, as mentioned, there are a lot of roles available and uh, there is pretty high demand. So uh, especially if you are developing those skills in the open source community, like I, I can assure you that there, there are a lot of people looking for people with that experience in that community. And so like you'll be a very attractive candidate mm -hmm. <laughs> and I guess that makes you money. Um, uh, Another, another big interest is, um, you know, a lot of companies that have potential, uh, you know, companies in aerospace, companies in banking, um, there's a lot of space for consulting in the, on this, um, you know, trying to help either your current employer or if you're a freelancer, helping other companies understand what the implications are for quantum for them. For some industries, like, it's really not going to likely impact them as far as we can tell. And so, you know, and, and, and mainly to just kind of manage a lot of the hype around it. Yeah. So, like I know people who go around giving like the, the end is nigh security will be destroyed. And yeah, that that's not reasonable. So like even just kind of having a more, realistic understanding of what the perspectives are like of course no one including myself can tell you when the quantum computer of some description is going to happen or you know when we'll be able to run shor's algorithm but uh risk risk analysis um kind of assistance for companies to kind of help them understand what is 
either what applications are interesting for them. So you could help them look at developing quantum algorithms for their applications or look at what research and stuff is out there and help them kind of develop that. Mm. Um, I think other ways you can monetize. Um, I don't often think of this because <laughs> coming from an academic perspective, it's the pursuit of the the knowledge that is my motivator. Yeah. But uh, there, I mean, the, even just last year, there was at the federal government level, a, I don't know how many, tens of billions investment in startups in in government research labs to continue work in this area. So there is a lot of money mm -hmm. <laughs> up for grabs, basically. So um, there definitely would be a lot of startups uh, that are looking for people to kind of bootstrap their their products and stuff too. So mm -hmm. um, if, if you're if you like startups or are into that space, definitely a good place to start looking at quantum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for sharing that. You you just reminded me. So I remember the government put out an article basically saying like, we are in order to stay competitive with other nation states, basically, we're pumping a bunch of money into the economy if you want to get into quantum computing. So it's mm -hmm. like, it's almost like, um, it's, it's like, there's other countries that are trying to, I don't know, weaponize it or something like that. Like there, there was a huge I, I don't know if I just got caught up in the hype of the article, but I just remember seeing that like they, they specifically said like, we're putting massive money into uh, programs that support like learning about quantum computing, building the technology and everything. So, like you were just saying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think the, the grain of truth that those come from is uh, I think at least at a nation state level, there's concern about cryptography. So mm -hmm. concern that, you know, if another nation state were to get a quantum computer before them, they could, I mean, in some potentially real sense, they're, I mean, the way to think about it is like, how long do you want to keep your data secret? And how long do you think before we'll have a quantum computer that will be able to break that encryption? Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you, if you want to keep stuff secret longer than that, then maybe you should be concerned about this at this point. Yeah. <laughs> um, but there there's been a lot of interesting kind of directions for that of people moving into what's called post-quantum cryptography, which is actually all entirely classical cryptographic methods, but that don't rely on factoring as oh, the wow. computationally hard problem. So okay. that definitely works. We don't have a proof that we don't have a quantum algorithm to do that, but at least for now it's temporarily safer. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's much easier to just do a firmware update to your router or to your encryption device than to swap it out for quantum hardware. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, there's, you know, I, I went to grad school in Canada, so I was working with the Canadian space agency on there. And I think a lot of the, at least perceived threat on this is that China has put more into this than I think almost any other country on the planet combined. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, wow. um, spun up from basically nothing to exceeding almost every other lab because they have, you know, 40, 40 people working on it to every one person working on it elsewhere. Wow. Um, which is really cool because it's, it's really accelerating the development of the field. However, you know, politics are involved with that. And especially when they have, they have quantum. So they were the first to launch a quantum satellite. Um, I was working on a competing product or a competing project in Canada to develop a quantum 
quantum key distribution satellite. And so, you know, they've already implemented those, potentially those new um, quantum-based crypto networks, which hmm. in principle can't be hacked. But as we talked about earlier, if you have a high enough powered laser or, you know, bribe the guard at the door, you can always get access to stuff. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> nothing, nothing protects you, protects you from like a James Bond style attack. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's, that's hilarious. Um, okay. So I know you have an amazing book that you're working on right now. Is there any other learning resources that come to mind? Like if you were, if your time was limited and you had to go to like very, uh, you'd be choose wisely. What are some favorite learning resources on quantum computing? Mm -hmm. um, so other good resources I would recommend, um, the, the Q-sharp docs are pretty great. Um, there's okay. a lot of kind of conceptual things um, at a kind of wide variety of, of levels there, um, as well as the katas. So they have a really um, neat um, kind of, there are a bunch of programs that don't compile. And so you have to find the bug or add the function or kind of piece that's missing to actually get it to compile. So it kind of gives you practice with that whole <laughs> get the error message, fix the error message sort of thing. Um, so I found those to be useful, um, especially kind of unlimited time resources. Um, uh, I also help run a qsharp.community, uh, group. So the website is qsharp.community. Um, okay. but yeah, it's just a collection of people working on open source projects that aren't officially maintained by, uh, the qsharp devs, but are. Uh, we have some projects that cross compile Q sharp to other like IBM hardware or other things. So um, just, just a fun place to kind of, you know, hang out and, and chat with people. And, and um, there's also a really good uh, stack exchange for quantum computing. Okay. Uh, so uh, run by strange works, I think, but yeah, it's uh, definitely a lot of really responsive people on there and, I, I answer a lot of questions there too, but <laughs> awesome. Um, it's nice to start building up that, you know, one of the things I'm used to when I'm doing Python development is like being able to find the stack exchange or stack overflow questions that exactly are what I'm thinking about and have the exact answer I want. So, right. you know, it's, it's nice to be developing that same sort of resource, but for quantum programming. Mm, that's cool. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, what excites you most about the future of quantum devices? <laughs> a, a lot of things. I mean, <laughs> to me, like the whole reason I, I went into them from a, from a research perspective is uh, I got really excited when I realized we could use devices to detect single particles of light. Like I could count individual photons in the lab, which amazing. Yeah. Just, I mean, there are obviously tons of cool things we can do, but like just the thought that I can just literally see on the oscilloscope, like there's one, there's two there's three was just really, really cool. Um, and like, there's so many, we obviously are talking a lot about quantum computing here, but there is so much kind of related space for quantum technologies, uh, like, uh, quantum key distribution or something I worked on in my postdoc was actually, um, you can use qubits and nano diamonds to enhance medical imaging. So like, rather than, 
putting chemical tracers in for the imaging, you can just have someone ingest nano diamonds, which sounds expensive, but it's actually not. <laughs> um, and it can greatly enhance like MRI imaging and things like that. So like, I think there's just, you know, quantum gives us access to one of the smallest scales, like smallest measurement scales. And I think there's a lot of really interesting space that we can kind of explore with that. You know, it's kind of like having a new tool in your toolbox. Like mm -hmm. you've, you've upgraded your multimeter to a signal processor and now you can actually <laughs> read signals directly and you're like, whoa, how can I, you know, how can I leverage that? And so there's, oh. there's so many different uh, industries that, you know, even petroleum, uh, like I, I know of tons of projects trying to leverage quantum sensors to do better petroleum like prospecting. So oh. really interesting stuff. Amazing. Yeah. Do you, do you see any uh, future in tools for accessibility? I know that's a passion spot for you too. Or is that, is that not really relevant or I mean appropriate application? Um, I think it's something as we're developing quantum technologies, we should keep in mind, okay. uh, like most technology, um, as to whether it will directly affect accessibility. Um, I have seen some people thinking about like smart prosthetics with it. Like mm -hmm. if you embed really a ton of sensors in the like 3D printed material that you make for somebody's replacement bone or something like that. Um, I mean, I genuinely, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure exactly what direction that will take. I, I yeah. know that kind of one of the things that I really focus on when I'm doing community events or trying to engage people in quantum there's so many barriers, I think, to people understanding it already. Like there's this, you know, whenever I, very frequently when I introduce myself, everybody's like, oh, you do quantum. Like, or either that's too hard or like, you must be really smart. And it's just like, I'm, do you do Kubernetes? That's really smart. Yeah. <laughs> like, I know all, personally, all the physicists I work with are like, what is Kubernetes and how, like, or, you know, insert Python tool here like yeah we all think everybody else's work is so hard but really it's I, there's no inherently harderness of quantum I think than a lot of other technologies and so making it more accessible to people making them feel empowered to actually participate in this community is really important to me mm -hmm. so that we have you know the right voices when kind of to your question about the government stuff like we probably will get to a point where this technology has some ethical considerations kind of like machine learning has been experiencing and so yeah. you know i want to make sure that the people who are involved in developing the technology or we are involving everyone in developing the technology so that we have everybody at the table when we have to make those ethical decisions and it isn't mm. just 20 copies of the same person yeah yeah, so being proactive, I guess, that's that's part of the fun is being kind of a thought leader in the spaces. You get to kind of cultivate this, uh, knowing like this is a direction we're probably going to end up uh, mm -hmm. going. So yeah, that's awesome. Uh, who who would you consider a role model for open learning? I know that's another passion spot of yours. Um, oh boy, I'd have to make a list of Twitter folks. <laughs> um, <laughs> honestly, like a, a lot of what I really, so. Or go with attributes if that's, if that's easier. Attributes, like, sure. Attributes um, of the. 
I mean, I, I guess kind of where, where I was coming from with that is, you know, I've learned a lot from like blogs people write and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. having also written some myself, I feel like, why am I doing this? No one, <laughs> like, I don't get any feedback. Is anyone seeing this? Hello. <laughs> um, but like those resources, I feel like are pretty invaluable. Even if it's just like a, hey, I installed it on my machine. I had this issue, but you know, hey, I got, I did the hello world or whatever. I think that's like having resources like that, having, um, uh, having things in open source is just so cool. Like when I was going through school and stuff, I mean, or even old, old, older Microsoft, like the idea that Microsoft would be developing open source tools was just like, how, how dare you suggest that? And now, almost the entirety of this product line is open source and freely available. So, you know, I think that really is a huge kind of bonus to, to learners and stuff because you can actually Mm -hmm. see what's going on. It's not just like this black box that you click in the GUI and it does things. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I really enjoy like both helping to create and, and learning from, uh, Probably the resource I like most along these lines is zines. So um, uh, Julia Evans uh, is someone who I first started on Twitter. I started following, but um, they make zines that basically teach you about like a Linux command or teach you about a, a Python package or something like that. You know, just a small thing and, you know, just kind of maybe talk about like sometimes it's in a like you're doing such and such to debug your web app or something like that. Uh, but I, I'm a very visual person. I like reading comics and stuff like that. So like seeing kind of talking about code with pictures, I think is a really cool like platform. And when so many people just kind of release them for free on their GitHub or like, it's, it's really cool. And something that I like definitely have as a passion project on the, on the back burner is to do some more zines and stuff. Nice. And you said Julia Evans is one mm-hmm. of the people that, that you ran into that did that? Cool. Yeah. Uh, they have a ton about all manner of different, like, mostly it's like Linux computer skills stuff, but there's okay. some on specific programming languages and stuff like that. But hmm. definitely helped me. Like, <laughs> I I know um, my, my partner, who is now my husband, uh, when we first started dating, our biggest first fight was on whether we were going to install Linux on my desktop or not. <laughs> Cause I was like, I can't be a gamer if I have Linux on my machine. Right. <laughs> and oh, that's but I hilarious. wanted to learn Linux. And so I ended up uh, doing it on virtual machines. And then my next laptop I, I did on Linux, but er, okay. reinstalled Linux. But yeah, that's a, that's a funny, uh, that's a funny situation there, you know? <laughs> Yeah, I, if it gives any, so um, yeah, my, my co-author on the book is is also my partner, and so okay. uh, he's, we went to grad school together, and he's mm-hmm. the theorist to my experimentalist. Amazing. So. That's mm-hmm. awesome. That's so awesome. Um, mm-hmm. What What is the, oh, actually, I want to ask you about the uh, Seattle Women in Quantum Computing and Applications. What are they doing mm-hmm. uh, for, like, this quarantine situation are they doing remote <laughs> meetups now or kind of I'm, I'm wondering how you guys are uh, how you're getting your fix I guess with community in this 
challenging time. Yeah, it, it has been pretty challenging. I think like many groups, so we've moved online meetups, um, okay. which has been, uh, you know, at some level technically challenging. Everybody's trying to figure out what the best way, what the best tech is for that, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but what I actually, so we had one of uh, this month's last week, um, but what was really fun was we actually had some people from India join. Okay. Who like would have never obviously would not have been able to come. Yeah. Because <laughs> they're not that's from amazing. Seattle. But you know, I I would really I'm really excited to basically expand. You know, make lemon, lemonade out of lemons here. And you know, given that we have to go to online stuff now, tons more people can actually join us. And yeah. so I think for the next one. Um, I'm considering having like multiple time slots because uh, when we did the one this last time, it was, you know, our normal meetup time in here in Seattle. So like 7 p.m. Pacific uh, daylight time. Uh, but it was like 3 a.m. for people in India. So yeah. um, I've, I've seen some people, some meetup groups go to kind of having like either alternating time slots or whatever to, to be more accessible for folks who are not in the same location. But, okay, cool. Um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm super excited and I, um, should hopefully this week be able to announce uh, our speaker for next month. But, um, yeah, I'm, we're, we, we have a, usually a, a talk at least once a month. Um, we're going through our quantum 101 series right now. So we're kind of having people talk, um, at a 101 like level on different aspects of quantum technology. So I talked about quantum development this last month, um, have people who, talk about quantum hardware if that's what you're interested in, have people talk about like what does error correction look like and kind of what basically everywhere in that stack. Um, I've Amazing. got people kind of lined up to, to talk about that. Um, and my goal is that kind of we'll move to, I want to do like hack nights where, you know, a lot of, I've seen a lot of the, the Python groups and stuff around here have just like, everybody brings the projects that they're working on, like no specific agenda, but then, you know, you're all physically co-located and can actually get help from other people in person while you're working on your projects, which yeah. is really nice. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. I'm, uh, I, I am curious. I want to know what, what is the anatomy of a high quality meetup, especially since we're going this route, like your lessons learned here. I mean, I want to share this with the audience, but like, I secretly want to know, how, uh, cause I I'm trying to do a, a very similar thing for my tribe. And so I was just wondering like, what is, yeah. What is the anatomy of a high quality meetup slash virtual meetup? <laughs> um, so the generally like there's, there's two parts from a time perspective to meet up. There's usually a talk or some sort of workshop and there's usually, if they're in person, a social time. And I think something that I've been trying to kind of, I mean, to me, that's one of the most valuable parts okay. to the meetup is actually getting to meet those people who are working in that space so that, you know, you know, I, I've had a lot of conference talks come out of like, hey, I remember you work on like math based stuff in Python. Let's, I have a question, <laughs> you know, so I want one of the things I've been really trying to work on when I, as we transition to the digital is trying to make sure there's still some space for that social aspect. Okay. So I've been keeping actually the same kind of schedule. Usually I have probably about half hour, 45 minutes for kind of social interaction before the talk, just so okay. that 
you know, it allows people to kind of join as they can, but also then gives, I mean, not only me time to interact with folks, but also everybody else to interact and find out where other people are coming from. So like, we got into some really good discussions uh, last week of just like, what are people interested in? Like, what is their background? Like, some, you know, and also good for me, like, how did you find this? <laughs> so some of them had found it just from Twitter. Some of them, you know, had gone to the in-person one last month. Like, so it okay. was, um, I really think that kind of social aspect is really highly valuable to everyone. Um, and so trying to make sure that, I mean, doing, having threaded conversations is difficult to do in, you know, with Zoom or Teams. And so that's, Kind of the the difficulty with that is like basically there can be one conversation thread unless right. you somehow can spin out like if you're in person it would be natural to have like multiple different conversation groups and you could be doing different things but so that's something I try to be conscious of then is that in that time and and virtual space to not let certain people dominate the conversation I mean sometimes people are just and I I have to think about that a lot because I'm that kind of person <laughs> so I. I always try to make sure everyone gets a chance to to talk and participate in that conversation, which is a challenge that is maybe not as not as relevant when you're necessarily in person. Okay, and and uh, still learning, I guess, about uh, what works best because it's just kind of recently been happening. So you're using yeah. Zoom though, right? Or no? So we actually use Teams. Um, okay. I but we had some challenges. I think. The core useful components here are to have, like we found out we really needed a chat on the side. Um, mm, okay. Because some people like either had noisy environments and couldn't unmute to ask, like I generally try to in encourage really interactive talks because yeah. I don't want to, like I could drone on forever about particular things, but if you're not interested or, or that's, you know, if there's a particular part of this that's really, really interesting, let's drill down into that. Like that's, I, I want that sort of interaction in, in the talks. Yeah. Um, but sometimes people have to ask those questions in chat. And so we had to kind of do some tech work around for that. So making sure, especially if you are the speaker, check that chat, encourage people to, you know, if they don't feel comfortable unmuting or whatever, to put the questions there. I think um, I've okay. seen a lot of people suggest using like hashtag hand raise. <laughs> so if you don't want people to um, necessarily interrupt or, or kind of like, because you know that changes the video and stuff like that. Uh, if people just put like hashtag hand raise, that can kind of effectively be like, hey, I'd like to speak. And then that can give you a chance to like transition appropriately. That's the speaker. Okay. And, and you're doing this with a team of people. So somebody is kind of managing like who, whose mic is active or something, or is it kind of just self-policing? Like, um, for the most part, it's self-policing. Like, I'm sure we're, we're all learning right now, kind of general etiquette is stay on mute unless you're like actively speaking or whatever, um, yeah. or have like a perfectly silent environment, which <laughs> I don't know anyone who has that. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, like um, Teams generally does a pretty good job of, you know, guessing at who is the active speaker and kind of displaying their video more prominently and, um, and I know like Zoom also, lots of the tools kind of have this sort of feature. And I think the biggest lesson I learned from their last one is understand the constraints about um, some of them have different account types. And so like I had the issue where some people couldn't 
type in the chat on Teams because they weren't didn't have a organizational account or whatever. Okay. So test some of that stuff ahead of time if it's a platform you're not familiar with. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I definitely learned that lesson the hard way, and we'll be doing some more testing before I do the next one. Yeah. <laughs> to make sure that goes more seamlessly. Amazing. Yeah, that's. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm so thankful for you sharing this stuff because I'm I'm starting. I, I'm like very far behind you on this thing. And so I'm really appreciative of you sharing this. I want to, I want to impact people positively in this time. Like it, it shouldn't be a hurdle. We've got all this technology. And so anyway, I love what you're, you're, mm -hmm. you're figuring it out and that's amazing. So thank you. Yeah. And, and I learned a lot from, um, a lot of my local meetup groups, actually. Um, I think the Pi ladies group, uh, posted like their guide from what they worked out. So, you know, okay. definitely don't reinvent the wheel on this. Like yeah. search around, people have good good docs uh, kind of showing some good paths forward on this. I did not discover those until after yeah. <laughs> the first one I had to do. But um, yeah, there's, as you say, we have all this technology. This shouldn't be an impossible challenge. Just know what tools you have available and know how they work, so. yeah. Uh, do men ever go to these like kind of like pie ladies meetups or like your, uh, your groups? Like I'm just, I, I live in the middle of nowhere where there's no meetups basically. So I'm, I'm trying to figure <laughs> out like, do like, is that a, is that a thing or, or is it? Yeah. I I'm just, I'm so sure. ignorant in this department. Please share. No. So, um, everyone is welcome at pie ladies events. Like, or at Wicca events for that matter. Yeah. Um, uh, most Wicca events have been about 50-50, honestly. Okay. Um, but the, <laughs> the utility I see with having groups that are at least nominally have like women or other sorts of underrepresented groups as part of the title, um, it works as a good filter to keep people who would be otherwise um, like hurtful or condescending or mm -hmm. just not really contribute to the discussion. Um, you know, it's, it's something that has impacted me. Like we were talking about, it's, it's not a meritocracy. Um, another big impact factor there is inherent bias. So like if you are a woman in tech, you are, you have a lot more challenges associated with breaking in and, mm -hmm. you know, that's the utility of going to a new field is there isn't as many people there to set up blockers. <laughs> yeah. But um, it's also something that I really care about in terms of being intentional about creating that community. I don't want mm. quantum technology to be as toxic as some of the other areas of tech are. And I see groups like PyLadies um, or even just like the, the Python open source community more generally, I think has been really good about you know, having codes of conduct at your events. Like if you are running meetups, virtual or otherwise, please, please, please have a code of conduct. Okay. I know it seems silly and you might be like, well, everyone here will act respectfully and hopefully that's true and you'll never have to use it. But it's yeah. one of those where if you need it, you're really going to need it. And um, to, yeah, it's, it's really... It's been really important to me in my career. Let's just put it that way. Amazing. Yeah. And, and finding ways to create space for people who are really engaged in tech, but don't otherwise necessarily feel like they're allowed to or can participate. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm sure even you've experienced, like, there's some really kind of hardcore tech tech bro, for lack of other There's <laughs> always a bigger that, nerd know, out there. Yeah. Like, yeah, but, like, you know, but just use that as a way to, like, talk down to other people or mm-hmm. tell them that their experience can't possibly be valid. Like, and, you know, that's... It, That's not cool. Oddly, We're all oddly, it, here. yeah. No, I I'm really appreciating what you're saying. Like when I've experienced those things, I'm the weirdo where I get fired up and I'm like, I'm gonna show you wrong. Like I, because I've had people say like, you're not a software developer, you're terrible at execution, and like I don't know if you can see this, but uh, that is my one word <laughs> right there. Like that is what I worship every day. So it the, that sort of stuff gets me fired up, but. I, I appreciate what you're saying. Like, it's a real thing. We need to create safe. It's kind of like the Toastmasters concept. Like there's a safe space where you can go to exercise these muscles and uh, it's, a, it's a filtering mechanism to kind of just let people know in many different fashions, like what is okay and what's not okay. And I really, I really appreciate that. Yeah, I had, to, I went through a lot of iterations because like when I was thinking about starting this meetup group, I was like, well, like trying to decide whether it should be like ladies or, you know, women sort of in the title yeah. or whatever. Uh, and because they're like, you're going to have a quantum computing startup or like meetup. And now you're going to only limit to the, only the women in quantum computing. Like you niched, <laughs> like, you that's niched the be, niche. <laughs> niche the niche. But like at our first meetup, we had almost 20 people and like honest, amazing, and most yeah. of them actually were women. Um, but, you know, I, I really, talking to a lot of the veteran meetup runners, uh, so people I had met at these meetup groups who had been running them for a while, you know, I kind of discussed with them strategies and stuff like that and settled on, I want to make sure to communicate to people who are coming what is expected. And basically, you know, the, the people who would be the most kind of disruptive or hurtful or, or not, not contribute what I'm looking for in the meetup group won't go to an event that has women in the title. So mm. despite, you know, that I, it says very clearly on all of our promotional materials, everyone is welcome. Like, but it's, it's an interesting kind of trick I've learned from them and really helps, I think, communicate, you know, what I'm expecting and what we're all expecting for the kind of culture of this group. That's awesome. I'm so glad I opened up this can of worms. There's out of the millions <laughs> of questions I could have asked, like, I'm very happy we won here. So thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so I, I just have like a very few handful of questions. I know we're over our time. Uh, can, mm-hmm. can I just borrow a few more uh, sure. moments here? Um, so your lesson from working in the, well, yeah, getting to know the right people, I guess, is your biggest, biggest lesson from working in the trenches. Was there anything else you wanted to add to that? Um. I mean, also the open source projects, like learn how to kind of interact in those communities. I think that's a really valuable skill because now a lot of orgs, like their internal development processes are either on GitHub or something similar to that. So like knowing how to do issues, how to do pull requests, stuff like that Mm. um, is pretty useful. Um, I think the other thing that I have learned, which is more of a soft skill, is knowing when I need to take a break. Uh, I can get very focused on things and then, you know, as my energy wanes and 
but I keep pushing because there, there are ways to push my buttons and get me to do things, which is also usually to tell me I can't. Um, that was the whole reason I took the first physics class was because somebody told me when girls can't take physics and I was awesome. like, watch me. Yeah. That's, all, that's <laughs> so awesome. I'll get a PhD in it. <laughs> uh, I love it. But yeah, so um, yeah, n knowing like how to self-regulate and know how to take care of your own, like in some cases, physical well-being, but also mental well-being is a, I think a lot of times we're pushed in tech to, you know, just push and push and drive and drive. And if, if you can, great, but I think we should have kind of expectations that we're all human and yeah. that sometimes we will need to take care of ourselves or, and especially given the kind of current pandemic situation, you know, uh, people have kids at home, people have, you know, people they're taking care of who are sick, like making sure we still remember that we're human uh, mm -hmm. while we're working on tech and that our tech is for humans, I think is another really important thing I have learned and strive to remember every day. Hmm. That's, that's awesome. Perhaps, uh, well, if you do more, more book writing, maybe even open up like the soft skills uh, can of worms. That's pretty, that's pretty empowering, mm -hmm. I think especially for folks that maybe don't have a lot of experience there. Um, what, what is the big domino you think that you could knock over that would, uh, for lack of better words, like birth your quantum programming conference series? <laughs> um, time. <laughs> oh yeah. That, that uh, uh, spare time thing. Yeah. What is that? <laughs> yeah. Um, between, writing the textbook, writing children's books, running a meetup group, doing open source contributions. I don't have a lot of spare time and now Animal Crossing, so. <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, I, I really enjoyed, um, so the video that you watched uh, from the Machine Learning for All conference, I yeah. really loved the model for that conference, which was basically, we're gonna get some people together, we're gonna talk about the topic they're really passionate about, which is, in that case, machine learning, and really try to make it inclusive and make sure, you know, I'm sure we've kind of all been to like talks before where it just starts 20 miles above our heads and just keeps going. And it's like, uh, I really wish I could understand this, but I'm already super lost. And, you know, this isn't a good use of my time at this point. Um, yeah. The, the series did a really good job of picking people and picking speakers that could really talk to a more general audience and you know wouldn't necessarily get bogged down in the details and help people kind of understand um some of them did actually go quite technical but kind of did it in such a way that they you know were cognizant of what people's backgrounds were because the first time i went to it i didn't know anything about machine learning mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> i was like they said no experience required i said cool i'm Sign coming <laughs> <laughs> Sign me up. I had a new project at work that was going to involve it. And I was like, I best I should learn something about this. So it was next week. So I'll go. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I really want to strive to kind of create that same kind of feeling, but for a quantum computing uh, conference series where basically I can have, you know, it's, it's kind of like a scaled up version of the meetup group. <laughs> so yeah. having, having folks really giving talks that are accessible, that don't make people feel more excluded that don't make people feel stupid or you know if your talk has a lot of like well clearly's or it should be obvious or 
you know, <laughs> I'm always the person, like I remember in lectures when they'd say that, I'd be like, oh, well, wait a minute, I'm not sure it was. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I, I really, um, it's something on my, taped below my monitor is my one year and five year goals. So it's on yeah. my, on my five year goal list. But um, yeah, I, I'm really excited to try and, you know, I think we need maybe a slightly bigger community first. So working on kind of bootstrapping these other community efforts. Um, but I really think we'll see even in the next couple of years, like the, the hardware will be available and, you know, everyone already pretty much everyone and their dog wants to know what quantum can do for them. And so there's not very many people that can answer that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think there's a lot of space to be that person. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. I look forward to seeing how that all transpires for you. Who is a role model that strikes you as someone that takes massive action since action is the word here uh what yeah who who would be that person do you think it could be like historic or on your twitter <laughs> feed you i don't know it is a white <laughs> no i'm i'm not my role model <laughs> i aspire to be but i am not <laughs> um probably so may, maybe not like the top person but the first one that comes to mind is actually paige bailey so um she's a um developer advocate, I believe, for TensorFlow at Google, but has been at Microsoft and stuff previously. Um, she, she's always doing things to improve her community. And I really, I'm really motivated by this. And mm -hmm. not necessarily just, she's kind of gotten to the popularity level where like if she decides to do something or like decides to tell somebody that they shouldn't do a thing, uh, even if that is Google, uh, they listen. So, you know, one of the things she really pushed forward was um, kind of a training program and a lot of educational materials for ethics and machine learning. So like resources for developers who are working on machine learning and AI applications to kind of like, depending on what stage they're working on, whether it's training models or collecting data, to think about how bias is getting into their system, how and what they can do to kind of address that or account for it. Um, and so like that was a hugely helpful resource, I think, for that community to kind of, you know, it happened to come out when I started working on machine learning stuff, but I was like, oh, this is great. You know, mm -hmm. she linked all the papers. There was tons of research, uh, you know, just right there ready for you to cite to people if he needed to yeah. um so you know i think she makes a lot of contributions to kind of the the tensorflow and ai community and is it's not just talk she does stuff yeah that's <laughs> so, that's awesome um, I'm, mm -hmm. I'm always looking for like-minded people to kind of surround myself with you have to mm -hmm. be so vigilant on what is kind of going into your mind and so yeah, having amazing humans like that around you is one way to avoid the all the the trash out there. So, <laughs> thank you. Yep. Um, yeah. So, let's see here. So, what do you do? You do anything special to make sure that you're getting awesome sleep? <laughs> um, <laughs> Since it's a non-negotiable. It is. It is my non-negotiable. Um, 
generally because I have trouble getting it. If I am thinking about a problem, it is really, really hard for me to shut down my brain and yeah. not just like lay there in bed with my phone thinking and writing notes <laughs> to myself that I will, I'm not actioning them on them right now, of course, but I am just taking notes so I don't forget. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> well, I, I got a dog recently and he definitely, uh, so I have a big German shepherd. Um, and mm -hmm. he definitely helps keep us on a routine. He's a, being a German shepherd, he likes trying to herd us up to bed at about 8 PM. Oh, okay. <laughs> Which, so he will like run upstairs when we don't follow him, he'll come back down and be like, you're coming. Right. <laughs> so, awesome. um, I think, you know, he is kind of a for forcing function for a schedule because he has to go out <laughs> at certain times. And, you know, I can't, trying to think of what it would be like in this quarantine without having him to at least anchor, like we've got to get at least get up here and we got to go to bed here. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I also have a, I have a lot of allergies, so I have a HEPA filter in my bedroom, which helps a lot. Mm. That's <laughs> those, I guess are my tips. Yeah. That are <laughs> kosher. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thank you for sharing. And uh, mm -hmm. what what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? How? That's a good question. I I think. Probably, I, I'm not sure like what was the first source I got this from, but like, um, especially coming from an academic background, you know, there's a lot of thinking that, you know, we're perfectly rational beings. We make perfectly rational decisions, especially when we're doing science. Uh, but like, again, kind of coming back to the we're all humans, uh, we're, we're never bias free. Like nobody is a perfectly unbiased source. So um, keeping that in mind when you're, you know, reading things from people's perspectives, like keeping in mind that everyone, like there is always a context to, to where things are coming from. And mm -hmm. uh, I think that's really helped me like understand people better to like understand uh, whether it's, an actual difference of opinion or you know just being confused by something like it really kind of helps um helps me remember like there there is no there's no objective truth <laughs> there is no like we are all we are all humans who have our own biases and you know the, the first step is admitting that and then we can you know do better science and do better coding and research and stuff like that. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. You, you want to, um, yeah, I'm not even gonna, I'm not even going to touch that. That's amazing. We're just going <laughs> to leave that in its, in its, in its purity. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, it definitely like fired off some, uh, some, uh, light bulbs for me. So thank you for sharing that. That's amazing. Um, what is the most important book that we should read in, in this year? my book. <laughs> no. Excellent. <laughs> that is the obligatory self-promotion answer. Um, most important book other than that. 
the call to action is after this, but, uh, <laughs> oh, okay. All right. All right. Sorry. Jump the gun. On no, you're one. good. No, you're fine. I, I set it up perfectly. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> um, To be honest, I do docs count sure. <laughs> if they are not in book form. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. the, the Q sharp docs are, I think, really helpful. Um, Excellent. Yeah. I'm sitting here looking at the stack of books on my desk. <laughs> uh, they're mostly textbook level. I, another another good quantum computing one is called Quantum Computing, A Gentle Introduction. Okay. And it does actually honor the gentle part. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, we'll make sure folks have access to those in the in the show notes. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I fibbed, I have one question before the call to action. And that question sure. is, what is the message that you want to leave the audience with? Uh, the message is everyone can be a quantum developer. Um, it does not, you don't have to have a specific background. You don't have to have a specific like skill set necessarily going in. There is space for everyone to contribute here and, and actually a desperate need for everyone to contribute because the, the physicists and, and people who are working on the research side don't have your skills. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, it really is a exciting kind of open pasture sort of opportunity to get into a new technology stack, to have impact in developing the direction for an entirely new platform. Like, you know, the impact, like API docs, things like that, like tons of people have classical experience on this. And I don't know, I get really fired up about getting having the opportunity to kind of have that impact on something new as opposed to like coming to a tool and having it, I mean, thankfully be very well developed and right. just using the tool, but, you know, actually being able to kind of see the development of the tool and, and, you know, see, see how you're helping to change it is really, yeah. really exciting. Awesome. Uh, and yes. So the call to action, where do they go immediately after listening to this podcast? Where do they connect with you? the mm -hmm. it's it's your uh it's your time sure so um definitely check out the the book uh, that we've been talking about so learn quantum computing with python and q sharp you can find it on manning.com um or uh, bitly slash uh, q sharp dash book um i think you have some codes for free books as well yep. so we'll have those as well um you can connect with me on pretty much any any platform you like. <laughs> I am on all of them. Uh, I am probably most active on Twitter. So my handle there is crazy, the number four, PI314. Um, I did a lot of pie memorization contests in high school. And so this was like my first email, <laughs> or this was like my Hotmail account alias and, you know, kind of <laughs> just stuck. So on GitHub, on Twitter, on Instagram, like I'm, crazy four pi three one four everywhere awesome um, so yeah hit me up there with questions um yeah i'm always i'm always happy to talk quantum uh, or python or both <laughs> nice all right well thank you so much it's been a pleasure uh having you on the show and uh getting to just pick your brain on all these things and uh mm -hmm. thank you so much